Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and welcome to our webinar, Why the Case for Regulating Cryptocurrencies is Becoming Unanswerable. The original description of the original cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, by Satoshi Nakamoto, envisaged a trustless, unintermediated method of transferring value. Ironically, it may now be the case that the survival and growth of the cryptocurrency markets depends on the trust created by regulators, by regulations, and worst of all, regulated intermediaries. Indeed, regulations, and especially the travel rule, are already stamping out the immortal part of Bitcoin and the foundation of its early success, namely anonymity. The case for regulating cryptocurrencies is becoming harder to resist by the day. Cryptocurrency thefts, scams, and hacks leading to investor money being stolen seem never to end. Been an average of 66 a year since the first major hack at Mt. Gox way back in 2014. The cryptocurrency markets are clearly being manipulated with mounting evidence of pump and dump schemes in which organizers synchronize purchases of a chosen cryptocurrency to inflate its price, generate interest from other investors, and then offload the cryptocurrency for profit. It's increasingly obvious that the profits from cryptocurrency trading are accruing to professional traders, while the losses accrue to retail investors. Cryptocurrency is being used to evade tax too, especially in emerging economies, where cryptocurrencies have become an important route around capital controls, as well as taxes. Then there is the sheer mounting toll of financial crime. The extension to cryptocurrencies of the FATF recommendations on anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism what seems an age ago, back in October 2018, signified official concern even at that early stage that cryptocurrencies were being used to launder money and fund terrorism. Now, four years, nearly four years on, FATF and the EU are asking more insistently what exactly the industry is actually doing about it. As the cryptocurrency markets increased in size, and indeed as they have more recently decreased in size, Concern has risen about their links to conventional markets and the increased risk of negative spillover effects in the traditional financial markets. The market infrastructures that support cryptocurrency trading and investment have long since proved inadequate, with unconscionable delays in settlement and indefensible surges in settlement fees, creating concern that the system might actually fail altogether and so create instability through a backlog of unsettled transactions comparable with that which occurred in the conventional equity markets in the late 1980s. More positively, there is a growing conviction that the failure to regulate cryptocurrencies has stymied the growth of the regulated security token markets because potential issuers and investors are struggling to distinguish between the two types of instrument and the two types of market. There is, I think, a realization even within the cryptocurrency industry itself that the growth of the market now depends on institutional money and that institutional money at scale demands regulated status. Certainly investors are now calling clearly for regulatory clarity. Even the more speculative investors are doing that. Everybody needs to know which digital assets are inside the regulatory perimeter and which are outside it, so they can proceed with confidence rather than simply taking legal advice on a case-by-case basis. Certain of the more respectable cryptocurrency exchanges and digital asset custodians have read the writing on the wall. They are moving towards regulated status. So our subject today is both topical and urgent. To help us find our way around it, we're joined by Barney Reynolds, who is Global Head of Shearman and Sterling's Financial Services Industry Group, which advises financial institutions and infrastructures, governments and public bodies, including on financial market regulation. 
Oliver Lynch is CEO of Bittrex Global, the first digital asset exchange to be regulated in Liechtenstein, where its head office is located, where the company has additional offices in Zurich, from where the majority of its operations are run, and Bermuda, where it is regulated and licensed by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. John Jones is a senior partner at XREG Consulting, a policy and regulatory affairs consulting firm specializing in crypto assets. And Wilf Odgers is an associate at Shearman and Sterling's Financial Institutions Advisory and Financial Regulatory Practice. In addition to our panelists, we as always also have you, our audience, and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. I won't be saving those questions and comments up to the end, but we'll uh, endeavor to address them as we go along. So as usual, you can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. But I'd like to begin by asking uh, Wilf to share with us his presentation on the present state and likely prospects of cryptocurrency regulation uh, in five important jurisdictions. Uh, Wilf, over to you. Thanks very much, Dominic. And um, thank you, everyone, uh, again, for joining. Um, before we jump into the, the panel session, we thought it might be useful to do a whistle-stop tour of how crypto is regulated in six key crypto jurisdictions, being the UK, the US, EU, Singapore, Switzerland, and in honour of uh, Ollie Lynch and Bittrex Global, Liechtenstein. Um, the table on screen is very much intended to be only a sum summary, and there are, of course, many nuances hiding beneath the words in each cell. But a glance at the slide is enough to show you that it's fair to say that cryptocurrency regulation is anything but harmonized globally. Each jurisdiction is plotting its own route, some by working out whether cryptocurrencies can be shoehorned into their existing financial services regimes, others by attempting to develop brand new frameworks to govern them. Additionally, at the asset level, the overarching message we are seeing is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach, and the regulatory status of each cryptocurrency will necessarily depend on the facts. So, how market participants should view cryptocurrencies from a regulatory perspective differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and then, in some cases, on the characteristics and use cases of the cryptocurrency in question. Some jurisdictions are bringing in detailed laws to regulate each type of cryptocurrency. For example, the EU's Mika. Uh, this will regulate crypto asset service providers and introduce a disclosure regime for the issuance, offering and administration, admission to trading, sorry, of crypto assets, including stablecoins. The marketing of crypto assets will also be regulated under Mika. And cryptocurrency derivatives uh, are already subject to regulation under MIFID II. Meanwhile, the UK has adopted a more wait-and-see approach, um, but has announced some regulatory changes and further consultations are scheduled. Seems to be introducing regulation bit by bit, focusing first on marketing and financial promotions, although, of course, cryptocurrency derivatives are regulated and their sale to retail clients is banned. We're expecting a further consultation from uh, the Treasury later this year on regulating a wider set of crypto activities, including trading cryptocurrencies. The regulation of stablecoins is also imminent, um, and the issuing or facilitating the use of them as a means of payment will be brought into the UK regulatory perimeter. Marketing of cryptocurrencies is also subject to regulation uh, by the Advertising Standards Agency, who have been fairly active in cracking down on non-compliant crypto advertising, 
including on various Instagram influencers who uh, have fallen foul of the rules, often unwittingly. The US regulatory architecture makes it difficult to navigate the regulation of crypto there. There are numerous federal level regulators, each vying for supremacy in the crypto space, on top of the various regulators in individual states that are also making their own laws. So cryptocurrencies are by, by default commodities, and so therefore regulated by the CFTC, unless they're classified as securities under the so-called Howey test, um, in which case the SEC has jurisdiction. The result is something of a land grab between the two regulators and others, resulting in uncertainty. Um, Biden's executive order earlier this year at least showed progress, um, and it'll be interesting to see how the regime is developed in the future. Progress is also being made on stablecoins there. Um, a working group recommended last year that Congress enact legislation establishing a federal prudential framework for stablecoin arrangements. Singapore, um, so often heralded as a crypto-friendly destination in the past, appears to have recently distanced itself uh, from this label. Its regime is also not as friendly as it portrays. Rather than having a deliberately welcoming regime, it relies on what appears to be a loophole in its legal drafting to permit certain crypto-related business without regulation. It generally does not regulate major cryptocurrencies, but the picture is murkier for others um, and often relies on a case-by-case -case analysis, legal opinions, um, and or a blessing by uh, mass. The regulation of marketing is tied into how the crypto asset itself is treated. So if it is a security, it's subject to the same marketing restrictions imposed on securities. If not, um, and therefore for cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, marketing is unregulated. The Swiss are adopting a technology neutral approach and applying existing laws with regulatory guidance as a top up. Um, cryptocurrencies are not yet regulated um, and there's not yet any specific regulation of cryptocurrency derivatives. Although FINMA has advised that certain stablecoins may qualify as derivatives in some circumstances and therefore not be regulated, and sorry, and therefore be regulated. <laughs> um, but stablecoins more generally are not specifically regulated. FINMA's view is that one-to-one -one stablecoins with fiat are equivalent to deposits under banking law. Likewise, marketing of crypto is largely unregulated. Uh, but Switzerland does have a DLT law governing the tokenization of financial instruments, including registration requirements. Lastly, Liechtenstein um, perhaps has one of the most developed regimes, and that is partly why you see a large exchange such as BitShares Global operating there. Um, its Blockchain Act specifies the nature of digital assets and the requirements for professional services rendered in connection with those assets. Um, while owning or using cryptocurrencies is not restricted, the issuance of tokens and provision of payment services in connection with cryptocurrencies may require a license. Likewise, issuing stablecoins may be licensable under existing securities laws. So despite these differing approaches, there are points of commonality. Uh, most regulators are concerned about consumer protection um, and have put in place limits and sometimes bans on retail interactions, such as the one in the UK I mentioned earlier. Another common regulatory concern is contagion across the financial markets. As more and more financial institutions, um, you know, traditional financial institutions become more involved in the crypto world, it becomes more of a concern. 
And as the slide shows, the approach to AML due diligence is largely harmonized in part, of course, thanks to FATF. In all jurisdictions, crypto exchanges and custodian wallet providers are required to register for AML purposes. There is also the so-called travel rule of FATF. Um, this requires financial institutions to exchange information on the originator and beneficiary of transfers of crypto assets. This is largely also relevant to exchanges and custodian wallet providers. Um, it's been applied already in the US, Singapore, Switzerland and Liechtenstein and is on its way in the UK and the EU. Given that many in the crypto and financial industry, as well as regulators, have called for a global approach to regulation, it will certainly be interesting to see whether this comes to pass anytime soon. On which note, um, seems like a good time to hand back to Dominic uh, for the panel session. If there are any questions on this slide or what I've just discussed, obviously we'll be happy to answer them during, during that session. Well, thank you, Will, for that uh, admirably uh, succinct summary of, of six jurisdictions. I'm impressed you were able to cram quite that much information in so short a, a time. Um, I, I'd, uh, I'd reiterate my suggestion to the audience that do please um, send your questions in straight away uh, for Will, for any of our other panellists as they occur to you. But I'd like to begin by asking um, Barney, I think, in, in particular, um, whether the remark I made at the outset, which is that the, uh, the more forward-thinking exchanges and the more institutionally-minded custodians are now act actively seeking regulatory status. And does it make sense for, given what Wilf has said about the fact there is no harmonization across these, these six jurisdictions, except on the question of, of anti-money laundering, does it make sense for any of these regulations to let the situation run and wait for the industry itself to wake up to the fact that actually having regulatory endorsement is a very good idea and will help your business attract different types of clients and grow faster? Or do you think the regulators are now in a situation where they're actually going to do something? I think, I think they are gearing up to doing something. I mean, it's very difficult intellectually to craft regulations for something so different from what's been coming before. So which is why many of them have taken the time on this and are still, still thinking about it. Because getting it right involves, you know, navigating the sort of nexus of law, you know, law including conflicts of laws, you know, whose legal system applies when and how and where. And, and where. Um, then uh, also um, regulation itself, which rules should apply and the nature of this asset class is that it introduces new risks, which are not really dealt with in the regulatory frameworks of the world currently. So those need properly examining and in order to understand those then you have the third thing to understand to, to look at which is how these how, how the technology works which is itself extremely complicated and there are explanations being put up all the time on the internet on it and being discussed but um you know th there's an evolving understanding it seems to me of that as well so i think it's highly complicated. I do think the regulators are doing, are gearing up, the main ones are gearing up to doing something quite serious. Mika obviously is the first sort of cut attempt from a major sort of regulatory jurisdiction. Um, the UK is is deep in thought. Um, obviously we benefit from the common law system so that we, we allow things to run perhaps more by instinct before stepping in. Uh, and I think currently that is the right approach still. Uh, but clearly things will happen in the US is, is clearly gearing up as well. 
Can I pick you up before I let you go, Barney, on, on one of the points you raised there about the technology itself? Because one of the things that is different about cryptocurrencies, and indeed in due course will be uh, correct about any type of tokenization, is that um, you can't be technology agnostic. Um, Wilf mentioned that Switzerland is adopting a technology agnostic approach, and historically not in the UK as well, regulations tended to be technology agnostic. But the technology actually is the thing here. Is it actually possible when uh, people active in these markets are not actually exchanging information or data about assets, they're actually exchanging the asset itself. The asset is written into the technology, it is serviced by the technology. So it's inherent in it, it's the thing itself. Is that one of the one of the problems that you have in in crafting regulation for this sector? Is actually, for once, you simply can't be technology agnostic. To a degree, I mean, so um, for digital assets as a as a class, um, from my conversations with the people involved in the technology, you know, there are people who have created what they class as tokens, and those don't necessarily have a link um, that's clear and certain and always there with the underlying thing. And then there are other people who've developed something which they claim can never be separated from the underlying and they don't like using the word token. So that's an example. Cryptocurrencies, yes, that the electronic, the digital representation is the thing. Um, but I think what Wilf was saying was in relation to the wider discussion, um, the thinking that's um, be, been developed over decades as to traditional, you know, the way to deal with traditional assets like bonds and equities and so on can be mapped onto this new regime, just adding in uh, any discrepancies between the old and the new arising from the technology. But when you get, come to cryptocurrencies, you're right, but it is entirely novel. So I think we're maybe talking about slightly different things when we're, um, there's an apparent difference on that. And I think that's what the point is. And in relation to something totally new like cryptocurrencies, um, the, the um, implications of the use of distributive ledger technology and blockchain are very serious. And it would appear, for instance, from what happened in relation to Tether, that although um, things are in some ways distributed and, and located nowhere, there are people who control them that, that can then step in and clean things up if they go wrong. And obviously, identifying who those people are and when they can do that and how they they can be controlled or, or kept in check is really the key to it. And, and the answer to that is in the code itself, which is where the complexity, the main complexity, I think, comes from. Thanks, Bonnie. Oliver, could I bring you in at this point? You're running a, a, an exchange. Um, it's been an interesting ride for you, I imagine, the last um, nine months or so. What's what's the view that you have reached about the right balance between innovation and regulation in the industry? Yeah. Hi, everyone from uh, from Sunny Lichtenstein. Thanks for having me on the panel. Um, Bitrix Global has sort of always advocated for high levels of regulation. Uh, the reason we are regulated in Liechtenstein is because it was the first European jurisdiction, EEA jurisdiction, to actually take a uh, an approach at all, and actually one that we think has been developed pretty well. Um, you know, we Bitrix was set up in 2013-14, and we've been calling for regulation from the get-go. So it's nice to see regulators eight years after that event uh, finally waking up to it. You know, Liechtenstein passed its Blockchain Act in 2018, and and Mika explicitly borrows from it. The the token container model that Barney was alluding to is an innovation of the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act, the TBTG. So 
I think it, there's a, a slight uncertainty on our part, on the part of Pitchfix Global as a whole, as to why this discussion seems to have taken everyone a little bit by surprise, because we've been having this discussion for years now. Um, you know, we've been pushing for regulation. You, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't put your money into an unregulated bank. Why would you trade on an unregulated exchange? Um, and I think not only are the institutional investors of the world that you referred to, Dominic, um, very alive to that fact, but so are retail customers. You know, retail, everyone, you, me, and, and anyone that, that is thinking of getting into cryptocurrencies wants to know what they're buying into. Um, and so they want three things, and these are the three things that we advocated from the very beginning. They want a safe and secure environment, a technologically secure environment, and our founders came from the world of, of technology security. They were uh, at uh, BlackBerry, at Amazon, and Microsoft doing this stuff. The second thing that they want is innovation. They want to you know, really get to grips with what this new technology is, what it can offer, and how it differs from traditional finance and financial products. And the third thing they want is regulation. They want to know that they are playing in an area where they are protected, where they're not going to be subject to you know, the worst instincts of bad actors out there and that they can engage and you know, frankly make money from this new technology. So those are the three things that we think people across the board are calling out for. Liechtenstein has actually led the way, but we've seen other jurisdictions get in there too. We're regulated in Bermuda, again, a small jurisdiction, which means it was nimble and quick uh, operating under the, the sort of legacy UK frameworks so of the common law jurisdiction, which I know will make Barney very happy. Um, but showing that there are lots of different models for doing these things. What I think regulators can't afford to do is um, let the world take them by, by storm. The technology is too exciting and too quick for people to just sit back and try and ride the wave um, whilst, whilst not really engaging in a way that I think too many jurisdictions have, have been doing at the moment. We're starting to, thanks, um, Oliver. I've got another question for you in a second. We're starting to get questions in now um, from members of the audience, one about uh, whether the UK will follow the EU example and create a British version of MICA. The second one, an important question on, on cross-border trading of crypto. Before we come to those, um, uh, and before I involve uh, Sean in this discussion, who's been waiting very patiently, I'm going to ask you, Oliver, this question. Do you, and it's prompted by an observation made by Henry Ration here, which is that there's a view that cryptocurrencies are a byproduct of long-term low interest rates, creating volatile vehicles for those seeking potentially higher returns instead of getting 0.01% on their cash at the bank. Historic and historical crashes like Tulip, South Sea Bubble, Mississippi Land, and many others occurred during periods of low uh, real yields on, on money. Perhaps this will be the fate of cryptocurrencies too, in which case holding them may themselves, those holding them may end up as end of peer stuffies of a Ponzi. In other words, if that occurs before cryptocurrency regulations are in place, further attempts at regulation will be redundant or a waste of time because the targets of the rules will have vanished in a puff of smoke. Do you ever worry that the, the combined efforts of the libertarians and the bad actors in cryptocurrency have cast a blight over the whole blockchain area and from which it may not recover, given that two thirds of the value has evaporated in the last seven months or so? Well, it won't surprise you to learn that I don't agree with uh, the fundamental push of that question, which is that I think that there is something uh, at its core different than other uh, examples that were given in that, in that question. 
and different from anything we've seen before, which is that the blockchain um, and understanding what the blockchain truly represents is a valuable, new and exciting proposition. So at its core, there is something about crypto uh, as a whole that makes it valuable and makes it different from those examples. Is it the case then to come to your question that, that the sector is blighted by bad actors? Absolutely. Uh, of course it is. And it's something that we as an industry need to get to grips with. We don't want these people to be tarnishing the reputation of something that we think is actually valuable. Unfortunately, uh, the, the, the way of the world is that other actors have not been as robust in their approach as we have. We've redoubled our efforts. We're, you know, spend all day, every day, working out how to ensure that people trading on Bitrix Global know who they're trading with, how they're trading and what they're trading so that we can begin and, and continue our efforts to stamp out these bad actors. So just as you know, fraudsters impact on the stock market and they impact on every other kind of traditional finance, they impact on digital finance and crypto too. And we absolutely, for that reason, we want to get rid of them. They have no place on Bridget's Global and they ought to have no place in the sector. Thanks, Oliver. Sean, um, I'd like to involve you now, and perhaps I could involve you by asking you to address this question we've received. Is the UK going to follow the EU's example of crypto asset legislation such as MICA, or is it more likely to use existing regulation where this is possible? And I, I wonder, I think it is an interesting question because, um, as Barney pointed out, the UK is a, is a common law jurisdiction and the EU is a civil law jurisdiction. So um, the UK is in a better position in some ways to, to let things evolve. Um, but I'm also uh, implicit in that question is whether some of the terrible things that have gone on in the cryptocurrency industry, can they be caught not just by existing laws on money or securities, but actually theft, conspiracy, antitrust, deception, and so on? I don't know how much you've thought about whether the existing structure of UK law is actually adequate to address the many malignancies which we've seen over the last two or three years. Sorry, there's a lot in that question. I've, I've thrown a lot at you and you're, you're still on mute. So perhaps while you're thinking. All, all very good questions. Um, let's, uh, let's, think about, um, let's think about the UK versus, uh, versus the EU. So yes, the EU's just finished the trilogues on, uh, on Mika. Uh, the reality is that Mika will almost certainly only start to bite, only be apply from 2020, beginning to end of 2024, depending on whether whether uh, one's involved with, with stable coins, any of the forms of stable coins, or whether one's involved with everything else, including being an intermediary. Um, that still pushes that regime way out uh, from where we are today. But we shouldn't forget that there are some EU member states uh, that already have uh, regulations in place, um, in some cases um, uh, limited to AML, um, which typically are, are not, uh, which are mandatory statutory arrangements, and others um, uh, dealing with prudential matters that quite typically um, are... Uh, voluntary. I'm thinking, for example, 
uh, the French regime, which um, which has been regulating digital asset service providers for a while. Um, will the UK follow that pattern? Well, actually, the UK has um, has to make up its mind what what it's going to do. Um, there have been a series of, uh, of, of consultations of late. Government has for some considerable time been trying to um, present the UK as being at the forefront of uh, regulation and uh, crypto, but has singular, uh, singly failed to do so, uh, largely because its financial regulator um, is completely opposed to that notion. So in the UK, um, the FCA has been put in charge of registering intermediaries, typically exchanges and uh, custodial wallet providers, um, effectively uh, the stuff that flows down from uh, the fat of changes back in 2018. Um, but has been using that regime as an AML plus regime. So it's been using a lot of um, the tools within its uh, armory to apply almost a quasi-prudential regime. And consequently, it's actually uh, registered very few uh, in the space, very small proportion of those who've applied. I mean, um, probably only 15%, something like that, of those who've made applications have, have, have been registered for something that is ostensibly just an AML regime. And what I think it reveals is that the regulator is largely opposed to government policy, which has been to encourage this sector. And it kind of exposes the challenge uh, in most countries of finding that balance that you talked about before uh, between regulation and innovation. Um, in very few cases, whether you're looking at, 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 at uh, FATF's changes to in, uh, bring crypto assets, um, uh, what it calls virtual assets. And indeed that itself is a problem, one of taxonomy and, 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 um, and vocabulary, but I, I'll not go down that rabbit hole for a moment. Um, where in changing or setting uh, regulatory standards of any sort, uh, there's been very little work done on the impact um, very little work on impact uh, analysis uh, to see how these measures may affect innovation. So you have groups of policymakers who are predominantly um, motivated by encouraging innovation, growth, creating new business opportunities and so on and so forth, uh, wanting to create an environment that will um, allow that to happen versus uh, the more traditional regulators and policymakers whose business it is to prevent bad stuff from happening. Uh, and so um, what has generally happened is not much. In reality, um, a lot of work could have been done in the policy and regulatory spheres long ago. Some of the risks uh, the risks that have become all too apparent in the last few months um, have been identified a long time ago. 
Uh, and very little action has been taken to do anything preemptive to create uh, a safer environment for depositors, investors, consumers, whatever. So I, 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 I absolutely agree with Oliver here. Um, it's a, a lot of intent to um, keep the sector uh, free of bad actors. It has been blighted by bad actors, but I would suggest that uh, one of the reasons it's been the sector crypto has been so blighted is because regulators have been sitting on their hands and sitting on the fence for far too long. There are notable exceptions. Liechtenstein is one, Bermuda another. One that beat them both to it was my own uh, jurisdiction of Gibraltar, where I was the, the regulator, where I architected the, the DLT regime. The very first in Europe, probably one of the first in Europe, actually to have statutes regulating this space very successfully as it happens. Um, there are a few others, of course. Uh, but in the main, the large jurisdictions have been sitting on their hands because they haven't known what to do about it. And now they're presented with this um, real problem of what kind of regulation to put in place. Um, regulate things that are not, in fact, techno technologically neutral. The very fact you have something called MECA, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, um, uh, about to become law. Uh, by definition, if it's got crypto assets in its name, it isn't technologically neutral. Um, or do they develop uh, entirely new forms of, uh, of regulation that allow for all these differences that you've already heard something of, uh, the differences between crypto and the traditional space? Uh, and unfortunately, probably as a result of our sort of crypto uh, the, really, the the um, uh, the uh, impact of these recent weeks and months, uh, and undoubtedly they will continue over the coming weeks, months, and years, um, will cause a knee jerk where everyone suddenly runs for what they're comfortable with, and will start applying regulation that will um, not necessarily be fit for purpose, and which will have all manner of unintended consequences. Will Britain follow the Mika path? Will Britain do something of its own, something lighter weight? Um, I think it actually will do something slightly lighter weight, uh, but probably not as much as it had intended to do three months ago. And I think that's a really important final point there, Sean, which is that you know, regulation isn't an on-off. You know, you know, around the world, it's not either you're regulated or you're not regulated. And jurisdictions are not equivalent. Um, it, it, you know, that some jurisdictions have taken it very seriously and some jurisdictions regulation is a a shiny badge um that that uh, unfortunately actually harms the sector as a whole because it confuses individuals and they have no idea if what they are getting is regulated in a meaningful way so i think some kind of international coordination and obviously batter have taken the lead on the travel rule side of things but there are other organizations as well that can distinguish between those jurisdictions taking it seriously um, and those that are um, paying lip service or sort of going through the motions. And I got I'd, like, I'd like to stay with that, um, Barney, that, that point about crypto trading. And I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but um, because you had a question on the cross-border trading of crypto. But Barney, perhaps you could just one thought that occurred to me as I was as I was listening to Sean. The the common law is we praised it for its flexibility, its ability to evolve without the need for statute law. 
Um, but is it not going to be necessary, even in common law jurisdictions, to rewrite the law to some extent to take account of new ideas like smart contracts and decentralized autonomous organizations? Or can you just rely on the common law? Um, depends on the topic. So I'd say, so, so for, um, for smart contracts, I think um, existing concepts can be applied to many of the things that are being written. Um, and, and, and I think that the, the, the law can float with the, the technology. The conflicts of law rules, so the rules about what the an asset is and where it is, may need adjust, adjustment or the courts may get there. And in fact, we had a similar thing in the 1990s when securities were dematerialized and there was a massive project um, that involved getting uh, the, the, the main jurisdictions together to have a coordinated approach to conflicts of laws, which was based actually outside the US on an English case called Reed Bishopsgate, um, where the common law was getting there and then the EU adopted an embellished version of that approach, which was not totally different from what had already happened in Article 8 of the UCC in the US. Um, so, so that's that topic. And, and I think the case law might get there. I think in this world, in that context, I'd say that um, uh, an awful lot in this the context of modern technology an awful lot of this is reverse solicitation so i think the conflicts of law problem that we found in the 90s with dematerialization securities which led to this very complicated international custodian structure for holding securities may not i would say probably isn't going to be necessary in the event for um digitized assets which can be traded um on an arrangement where the English courts are happy to take jurisdiction. And so long as that is the case, then um, I think the Hague Convention, which recognises choice of our you know, jurisdiction, will uh, you know, apply um, sufficient that other jurisdictions then sort of back off, uh, as it were. So that, and then, then you've got the... Um, the DAO. The DAO. The DAOs, the DAOs are a source of, of, a, of a lot of the problems which are occurring in the DeFi space, whose governance issues, you've got like 1% of the, the holders distort what happens in, in favour of their own interests and so on. That's leading to very clear issues of governance, which the law needs to address, I would have thought. Well, I think the, the thing with the DAO is what is the DAO, what, what's underpinning it? What's the legal structure underneath it? And then whose law applies to that? And is it, and this is not determined yet, satisfactorily but 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 a case could solve it uh or a law commission paper or, or whatever but but is it an unincorporated association is it a partnership you know or is it some new sui generis thing which the courts could develop but you know what 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 is it that we're talking about the DAO with the code-based sort of governance rules I think a court can get to grips with once one's established the jurisdiction and what it's dealing with and then on regulation itself I mean I would say I mean, the common, the common law doesn't deal with regulations. So regulation is, is, is dealing with financial risk and restricting activities that are dangerous to the market as a whole or to consumers. I mean, there, I, I take a slightly different view of where we've got to. I mean, so the UK has been very tough in restricting access for consumers. And one can agree or disagree about whether that's correct or not. I would note that Singapore has most recently um, sort of taken a, a very similar approach. Um, for the wholesale markets, there clearly does need to be regulation, but it needs to be very thoughtfully conceived. 
because if you leap in too early, you can you can force the market into all sorts of business structures, which then create consequential risks without actually seeing what the market wants to do and then dealing with the risks that arise from that, which is our, our traditional method. So I do think it's right to be observing all the time. I do think we need to now step in and regulate. There are regulators around the world who've stepped in with rules, but that doesn't mean they're good rules, nor does it mean, by the way, that any genuine supervision is taking place. And so the risks for those regulators is either the rules turn out to have distorted the market in an unsatisfactory way, creating new risks, which is quite possible, or and or uh, the lack of thoughtful, proper supervision, particularly on something as complex as computer code, which I very much suspect in relation to some of these assets, the regulators just are not on top of and they're going to have to get others to help them on. Um, you know, the, the danger reputationally to the entire edifice and infrastructure of being caught out on that is very significant indeed. So I think um, we do in the UK need to construct regulation around certain assets thoughtfully and, and, and around the risks that arise. And then we need to follow through once we're doing that. So the two need to go together. It's easy to overlook the supervisory element and just to rely on writing rules. But as I say, I think that could blow the credibility of, of a regime. And we have a trusted regime, and that trust has been built up over generations. And we need to be very careful not to sacrifice that. At the moment, the wholesale markets are largely unregulated, apart from the AML stuff. I, I think the AML, the reluctance of the FCA to allow certain people into the market under the AML rules is founded. It's not entirely, I mean, on the examples I know, I think there are reasons for it. Um, and again, reputationally, letting things, product offerings in where you can register just with an email address uh, below a certain financial threshold and so on. I mean, that that carries, well, first of all, I think it's in breach of that uh, requirements, but it also carries reputational risk for whoever lets that sort of business in. Yeah, even, I, the, I even, the, even, the, even the AML is, and you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but even the AML is all over the map across these various jurisdictions, different thresholds, different states. Some have implemented already, some have not, to, to the point which uh, you raised earlier, Oliver, about a need for international collaboration here. We need some kind of harmonization. You've got these differences between civil jurisdictions and common law jurisdictions. What I'm hearing is that the, the period of experimentation in regulation is now over. Uh, there's gonna be no more sandboxes, uh, no more um, safe harbors. Um, there's gonna be no more hands off or hands on here the regulators are are getting their minds around this question and you can say what you're going to what you were about to say Oliver immediately but could you also address this question and I'm sure Wilf may have some views on this the question from a member of the audience given the cross-border nature of crypto trading and market manipulation is one of the key issues could you share your thoughts on how this issue can be addressed effectively you've stated Oliver there's a need for international cross-border collaboration what's your suggestion as to how to make it happen given these differences I've just alluded to uh, well, well, thank you. So, so I think there's about four or five different open points here. Let, let me try and go through them. I think the issue that runs through everything that Barney mentioned, uh, you know, DAOs, um, conflicts of laws, uh, yeah, the, the underlying point is this question of the property rights associated with them all. And I think, in fact, that there's, there's very little difference when we're talking about common law or civil law jurisdictions in this space, because the common law jurisdiction here, nobody, nobody is suggesting that we sit back and wait for the courts to make decisions on these things, because that would take 20 years and, you know, crypto years would all be dead by then. Um, 
So nobody's suggesting that there's a common law jurisdiction, nor is anyone suggesting that we sit back and let the regulators, however um, sort of specialist or clever they may be, come up with their own rules on an ad hoc basis, because that would that would breach the rule of law and lead to total chaos and unpredictability. So common law civil law system doesn't really matter for these purposes when you're talking about what the rules are. And then to Barney's point about the level of supervision, well, it does, again, doesn't really matter if it's the FMA in Liechtenstein supervising, the FCA in, in the UK supervising. You just want expert, clever, uh, interested regulators who get to grips with what's really going on. So I, I think actually the civil law, common law thing might have wider implications, but it doesn't really impact on, on, the, on the discussion we're having here because the question goes to the property rights. And I understand the Law Commission are actually working on this at the moment, so with a view to bringing in a, a new guidance or new, new suggestions on property rights in the UK. Obviously, places like Liechtenstein and the EU address that more directly by just introducing new, new rules for their codes on it. So I think that that's a really important point. On the international front, I think it's important not to overstate the matter. You know, globalization of finance has been a reality for 40 plus years now, and there is no sensible call for a global shares regulator or a global derivatives regulator. The markets work perfectly okay when everyone does their own thing, but you have coordinating international organizations. So I think that's, you know, that's the model to be followed. And there will be a recognition of those jurisdictions that have genuine regulation supervised appropriately and those that haven't. So I, I, I don't think that we're going to see a global crypto regulation, nor would we want to, because actually that really does get down to the realms of stifling innovation. What you will see is the better models through some kind of survival of the fittest being adopted uh, by other jurisdictions. We're already seeing that. Mika is explicitly based on the TVTG in Liechtenstein. Other examples Sean mentioned, the one in Gibraltar, uh, that there are models out there that are already answering the difficult questions. And we'll see that those become a template for jurisdictions that want to get involved in actual taking, taking grips on regulation. So I agree with everything Bunny says in terms of it requires a supervisor um, to actually supervise, uh, a regulator to actually supervise and be on the ground. You know, that's true of anything. That's true if I want to regulate derivatives, if I want to regulate shares, if I want to regulate pension funds. Ultimately, you can write whatever you want in, in the prettiest font you can find. If it's not applied, then it doesn't matter. If, if I may um, just add to, to, to some of the points there that, that Oliver's made. Um, uh, and also uh, to you, Dominic, you, you said just a moment ago that uh, um, experimentation in regulation is over. Uh, and, and, and I think you referenced the um, numbers of sandboxes that have been running for periods of time. Some, uh, in some cases, I think almost four or five years now, if I think about um, the FCA's Project Innovate. Um, I'm actually going to disagree with you about this. I think experimentation in regulation of crypto has barely started. I think there's been a lot of lip service played to, um, to uh, trying to understand crypto, um, limited time uh, sandboxes, whether six months or a year, to figure out how stuff fits existing regulation 
in order to learn more about it has been the, the, the typical characterization of those sandboxes. And actually very little has been going on uh, in, in trying to regulate this new stuff, whether in new ways or indeed trying to make them fit the existing, uh, the existing regulatory frameworks. Um, Oliver mentioned their um, coordinating efforts, and there are a lot of coordinating efforts going on. You know, much is driven by the G20 using its instruments in the form of FATF and the Financial Stability Board and IOSCO and the insurance uh, equivalent, uh, but um, using these uh, international, these multi-governmental organizations to, uh, to, to, to find some common ground, to set standards that countries can then apply. Uh, but you know something? They've been very slow at actually doing any real stuff. And I'll give you a good example. I sat on um, FATF's policy development group at the time that virtual assets um, came into scope. So I, I, I like to think I know a little bit about this. You know, we're going back to 2017-18 uh, when uh, FATF started work on this. Um, it came out with one sentence, two sentence change to one of its recommendations, effectively bringing crypto into scope in 2018. It came out with guidance a year later in 2019. And uh, you know something, less than half of uh, FATF uh, members and, uh, I'm gonna say FATF members, more than half of FATF members, but within the whole FATF network of 209 countries, less than half of all of them have actually implemented anything. We're now 2022, three years after the guidance came out, four years nearly after the after crypto was brought into scope. Uh, and when you look at, say, one aspect of it, the travel rule, which much is talked about, actually only 11 countries, only 11 out of 209 countries are currently um, uh, enforcing the travel rule. This foot dragging is part of the problem as to why bad actors have still been blighting this sector. Um, there has been a lot of talk and very little action. Yeah, yeah if I can give you those figures, 98 jurisdictions that took part in that FATF survey in March, 29 have actually passed a travel rule, 36 have yet to start on legislation, and as you say, only 11 have actually started enforcing anything. There's no jurisdiction yet that is fully compliant with the FATF standards on virtual assets and VASPs, and only 12 of them are actually even largely compliant. So even in the one area hmm. where this industry has been explicitly regulated, isn't much progress. Wilf, um, can you, uh, uh, there's an observation here from, um, on the question, member of the audience raised up, how do we regulate, these are things are traded across borders, how do we, and market manipulation is an issue, how do we tackle that issue? I'm not sure we've really answered that yet. You may have some thoughts on it, but here's an observation by a member of the audience, um, uh, Kaladi Majika Dunmi, who says, we'd rather not have a globally harmonized approach because such is typically crafted in the image of and dominated by the global North which is not tailored to the needs of the global south. So it, it's a fair point, markets need different regimes. So how can we answer one member of the audience who thinks we need a globally harmonized approach? Is this the work of the G20, IOSCO, CPMI, FATF, who, who does it? And on the other hand, do we need lots more competition between and experimentation between jurisdictions because different strokes for different folks or whatever cliche you prefer? 
Will, yeah. how do we strike a balance there? I think it's an interesting point. Um, you know, I, I, I think part of the question is, what is the nature of the global harmonization? Is it just simply, a, you know, a few principles that jurisdictions are expected to abide by or is it something much more detailed and, and prescriptive on you know you must regulate crypto in this way and 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 by doing the latter you're obviously as you say shutting down perhaps more innovative um jurisdictions that want you know regulatory arbitrage and attract um people where perhaps the regulation is uh, less stringent or, or, or more welcoming um but I do, I do think there needs to be something um, you know, we have it in, in every other sector, um, so why not in crypto? But I, I do think the question is, what is the nature of, of, of um, the harmonization? And I think just going back to, to one of the earlier points, what I think is quite interesting is, you know, we're talking about big, bigger jurisdictions dragging their feet here and, and other jurisdictions such as, you know, Liechtenstein and Bermuda were, were very agile and set up their regimes very quickly and, and, and Gibraltar, of course. Um, I do wonder where we'll be in five or 10 years when we have you know, Mika's up and running and it's everyone's sort of worked out how it, how it operates. The UK presumably will have a regime by then. The US will have a regime. Will we then be saying, well, actually they did the right thing. They, you know, the CFTC under Giancarlo had the do no harm approach. Um, see how it plays out, see what these things are, um, see how they develop. Is will that come to be the better approach? Because the re the regimes are, are sort of more apt and, and, and more fitting for what is required for crypto regulation, and perhaps the first movers move too quickly and and, and are left behind. Um, I think that's something to bear in mind. Um, it might be that we we say completely the opposite and we say, well, you know, the UK, the US, the EU were far too slow, um, and their regime, you know, their their attractiveness to to cryptos has suffered as a result. Um, but certainly, going back to the original point, yeah, I, I, I do think there there is a requirement for some sort of harmonisation. But it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, the nature of it. You brought up the question of principles based versus versus rule based. Is that the sound foundation for an agreement which would cover both the global north and the global south, and also meet the requirement for some kind of collaboration, coordination? harmonization across different jurisdictions is it even possible in a civil law jurisdiction to to have a principle-based approach to regulation all of us yeah uh, yes uh, <laughs> it, it absolutely is there's, there's nothing inherent about um a principles-based set of regulations that that limits it's a common law again because in this area it's going to be a question of applying written rules again we're not we're not talking about something that's going to evolve over case law. So I, I, it fundamentally, from a supervisory perspective, I don't see how it makes any difference if it's published in the FCA handbook or if it's published in the FMA rulebook. It, you know, the, the, the legal regime underpinning those makes no difference. I'd just, and I'd just add to that. I mean, I think there is a practical difference in how the regulators and judges operate in a code-based system. It's not just civil law, because Scots law is uncodified civil law is, is similar to common law in this respect. So it's the code-based approach. I think um, the, the regulators and judges are more mechanistic in the code-based approach and more reliance is placed on the wording of the rules, albeit in fact, paradoxically, there's more twisting of wording that goes on in those systems because of the ossified nature of the rules. I mean, 
just in terms of crafting it, my my con concern is that we're going into something which is novel and we're going to have to create some new elements of architecture for it. And in the nature of law and regulation, once you get the foundations in place, then everything is an embellishment on that, effectively. And going back to basics after you start is exceedingly difficult for everyone involved and the regulators to be very reluctant to do it. So, and I, the method that we have in the UK is, is generally to build in a minimalist way on existing structures and reinterpret what we've already got. And the benefit of that is that you, you get automatically with that a lot of certainty that flows from the learned knowledge from, of all the existing rules and ways of thinking and case law and legal um, principles and rules. And so I, I'm keen that we do that and that we don't just start writing rules for the sake of it. I mean, as I see Mika, it's mainly a, a, a sort of pared down version of MIFID II and prospect, the prospectus directive. So it's not such an original sort of thing, but by creating a standalone sort of further sort of panoply for, for this asset class, what you're doing, I think I think it's too crude in in particular in not in, in relation to differences between tokens and financial instruments. You know, is there one? How do you deal with that? Um, I mean, even at FATF, um, the definition of virtual assets then has some guidance carving out NFTs. Well, that in itself is also a big point. So I think I, I agree with agreeing some things at a global level. Then everyone goes away and works out their own way of doing it or at the same time. And so for, for stable coins, the UK was heavily involved in the CPMI or IOSCO paper, which advocated extending the payment rules to stable coins, which in principle is sensible. It's a question, obviously, the devil's in detail of how you do that. And at the same time, the UK has announced that it's going to do that itself. That sort of method seems to me to be the way forward. And stable coins in the meantime, as Sean said, you know, the, the, the things that have happened in that market have not been unexpected, but we've now got vivid examples of what can go wrong. Uh, um, you know, algo stable coins, you know, um, need an awful lot of thought if they're going to be allowed to be integrated. Um, but I think, as, as I say, I think I think less is more. And so our system, which is which does tend towards simplicity, I think will prove its weight um, as we get going, because I, I I just think that's the best way to do law and regulation. And just on the sandboxes, I think the, the sandboxes, I, I agree with Sean, I think we're just beginning on that. Sandboxes are essential to this, to allow people to try things out in a safe environment, which is a regulated environment. Then I think we need a gradated approach, which is not one in EU law or on the continent, which is uh, more one size fits law, which is I think there should be ways of structuring rules around things according to how big a market share they have or how systemically risky they are so that we can have fewer rules for things that are less risky and we can have a sort of a ladder up to the riskiest things um, but that is consistent and coherent where you add segments of rule books according to risks being brought into the system but defining that is obviously tricky and, and one other point just on the sort of Going back to where we are now, I mean, the US regulators have been restricting their bank banks de facto from getting into this market, uh, which is another thing going on as well. I mean, the financial markets are not yet fully integrated into this world. Um, and so all of that thinking needs to take place. And I think it's inevitably going to be iterative and slow. 
but we're sitting here on a global financial center, one of the top two. And so what we do scales up beyond what happens anywhere else, pretty much. So, so it's a very delicate exercise. And I think more thought and less is more is the best approach. That's not to say nothing is, is good. We do need to do things. And I, and I agree we need to get on with it. I just want to I just want to agree briefly with Bonnie one of Bonnie's points there, which is about Mika, because I think you know that there's a lot in Mika that is very good, um, but there are some instincts there to overregulate, which is something that you unfortunately see um, across the EU's thinking. Now, we at Global have the benefit of being regulated in one civil law jurisdiction and one common law jurisdiction, so we see it on the ground. You know, the the, the BMA, a highly sophisticated regulator very used to regulating obviously the insurance sector operating under common law principles. The FMA similarly, a very sophisticated regulator um, used to regulating in the banking, traditional banking industry within the context of the EEA. And it, it turns out the answer is they may get there by different, slightly different approaches, but more often than not, they're getting to the same place. So again, I think it's the, the question of, and I come back to not all regulation is equal, some jurisdictions are just better at it than others. Uh, and I think if there's an international cooperation role, it's it's a, a leveling up role or an identification of those jurisdictions that are are worth the name regulated. Thank you, Oliver. Our, our well, we're actually, we're actually running over, over time now. So I think it would be um, a, a good idea to, and Sean, I know you want to say something and hopefully I'll give you an opportunity in a sec, but I think we should try and wrap this up within the next say 10 minutes or so. Um, because people need to, to go, our audience, as well as some of our panellists. But could I, could I ask you perhaps first, John, to pick up uh, um, uh, Barney's suggestion we get back to basics. And one of the things he said was that the FATF definition excludes NFTs. One of the things that struck me when I was preparing for this discussion today was actually how little agreement there is on the definitions of what actually we're trying to regulate here. Um, the FATF actually talks of virtual assets. Uh, the EU refers to crypto assets. And we have um, you know, asset-backed tokens, we have native tokens, we have cryptocurrencies, we have DeFi. It's actually like nailing a jelly to the wall, trying to work out what, the, what we're actually regulating here, which is why maybe a principles-based approach is, is, is a sensible um, answer to that. So that's my first point is, is, you know, is agreeing a set of definitions of what's being regulated um, essential to come up with some harmonized global regulation of this industry which suits the needs of the global south and the global north um, and if so are we going to stick to regulating the instruments or are we also having to regulate the institutions which deal in issue um, safe keep um, list those instruments so i guess my big question is how can regulators combine regulation of the instruments, whether we call them virtual assets or crypto assets, and the institutions that deal in those virtual or crypto assets. What it strikes me as a difficult conundrum that. Are you regulating the, the intermediaries or the instruments? Actually, right now we, we have that same conundrum, um, in um, which is addressed in two entirely different ways if you consider the US versus the European approaches. So in Europe, we define a set of instruments and then we define a set of activities, activities performed by various types of actors um, uh, in relation to those in, uh, instruments. And we say those, uh, um, uh, if, if they um, tick the boxes in both columns, they 
fall within MIFID. That's the, the typical approach. And that's uh, largely the approach that Mika is setting to, uh, uh, to, to copy. Um, just defining some new instruments, as you rightly point out, not necessarily entirely the same definitions as, uh, as other jurisdictions have applied. Um, and then various activities and if you tick both boxes, then you're going to be regulated by, by, by Mika. And I think you've raised a super important point here because we cannot and should not be talking about the regulation of crypto assets or cryptocurrencies or digital assets or digital, whatever you want to call them. Um, although actually what you call them and the definitions that go with them are super important and they need to be resolved and haven't yet been. Um, what we should be talking about is the regulation of various activities in relation to these crypto assets, digital assets, and so on and so forth, recognizing that not all cryptos are exactly the same. And there's been this um, uh, 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 tendency of late to lump everything together under, under, under one sort of heading of crypto assets or whatever, uh, and rather than looking at the different uh, functions of different types of crypto assets. And almost forgetting the different types of activities um, and functions of those who uh, interact with, with cryptos. Uh, so I think your, your question is spot on. And the very first piece around which there needs to be uh, agreement is, um, is vocabulary and taxonomy. So there's the very start point for, for that uh, coordinating activity that needs to be undertaken. Otherwise, we're talking about oranges and apples, depending on where you are. Wilf, um, a, a last word from you, perhaps, on this point about A, definitions, and B, the balance between regulating instruments and regulating activities and or institutions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think certainly there needs to be some sort of agreement on how we do define um, um, these things, uh, you know, as we've discussed, it's in in every different jurisdiction, they're defined in different ways, and then often imperfectly. Um, and I don't think that's anyone's fault or, or any issue. It's just, you know, we have we haven't everyone hasn't sat down and thought, you know, how do we properly capture what these things are? Um, and I think once that's done, it, you know, everything will then start to flow from that. But I, I don't think you can have the sort of principles we were talking about without nailing down, um, you know, a, a sort of common definition of, of what we're actually talking about here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's important um, and it'll be interesting to see whether there's any sort of uh, move towards trying to do that. Um, but I do, yeah, I, I do think it's an essential, essential thing going forward. Oliver, what's your? How would you like to be to be regulated as an institution, as a set of activities, by the instruments in which you in which you trade? Well, I think I think the regulatory framework that's developing uh, amongst those jurisdictions that are taking it seriously is the right one. Uh, there, there's the token container model, which is the one that underpins Liechtenstein and Mika, seems to us to have a lot going for it because it means that people know exactly what it is they're trading and what the rights associated with that are. Um, but just, it, I guess it goes back to your question about the sandboxes and development. The technology moves on so quickly, uh, mm -hmm. the practice moves on so quickly, the offerings available to users moves on so quickly. I think we would be 
um, churlish to think that we're going to solve this once and never have to look at it again. The fact is, there's going to be a dynamic level of regulation. Some things are immutable. I, we think the, A1, uh, the, the, the KYC AML stuff is immutable because the principles have been there for, for many years and are well known. Um, it certainly suits some institutions to pretend that they don't know how the regulation for AML is going to look. But, but we do. Sophisticated participants do know what that looks like. But on the technology side, what's true today may not be true in, in six months or a year from now. Uh, and regulators are going to have to be quick to adapt um, and, and you know, work in partnership with the people uh, that are actually participating in the, in the sector to make it a fair, secure and regulated industry that people want to participate in. So you like Mika, but you recognise that it might very soon be made out of date by the technology. Well, it depends on what, what you mean by made out of date. The principles underlying it ought not to be out of date. But the, the um, details, as Bonnie said, the devil is always in those. So um, will there need to be an evolution? Uh, of, certainly. You know, if, if there's one thing we know about the sector, it's that innovation uh, proceeds at, at lightning speed. So I think you know, the, the best instincts of Mika, the best instincts, instincts of the TBTG are to regulate by principle to set out what we're trying to achieve and how we're trying to achieve it rather than be, tra- be tricked into or trapped by um, a kind of much more detailed, granular, this is exactly what we've got now, so we're going to regulate this now, because that really does risk becoming out of date very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Arnie, um, it's up, it, I'm coming to you to, to close out the entire webinar. The two words I'm going to carry away from our discussion this afternoon is, is definitions and, and principles as a flexible, iterative way forward for regulating an industry which continues to evolve pretty rapidly. What yes. I mean, we, we in, the, in fact, the MECA approach, the EU MIFID approach, came from the 1986 Act, Financial Services Act in the UK, which was a very cleverly drafted piece of legislation which split things into instruments and then activities. And then if you conduct a relevant activity in respect of an instrument, then you're regulated. Um, and, and the wording has pretty much stood the test of time. What we now need to do on our method is move incrementally from that to map onto these new assets and figure out how they fit in there and create new ones only when necessary. On the instrument side, um, obviously many, you need to leave it so that the most people out there who touch these instruments don't fall into regulation. It's only people doing heavy duty activities that are affecting the value of these instruments or looking after them for someone or whatever that need regulation. Uh, So on the the instrument side, though, there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done as to whether or not we need to create new ones or, in fact, dock into existing definitions, perhaps with some tweaks. That's the first thing. And then on the activity side, we need to think whether we can use existing activities pretty much for most of the people like custodians floating around um, the, the, the edges or exchanges. You know, there are a whole load of rules that have been developed over decades around exchanges were very thoughtful. Do we just apply those to crypto exchanges or, or do we adjust them? Do we water some down and so on? And that's really where the rubber hits the road. So it's that kind of dialogue that we need to get into sooner rather than later in the UK. Um, 
and, and I believe it's already happening, you know, behind the scenes. And, and it's when that starts to be unfurled, and we've already talked about payments and stable coins, that we'll really see this, the regulatory landscape take shape. Well, one thing um, you referred to the 1986 Financial Services Act, I think one thing, one aspect of that didn't survive was self-regulation. So can we expect this industry is going to be formally regulated by instruments of, or institutions of the state rather than by the industry itself? Well, actually, in the 86 Act, the SROs, there were three of them, uh, were under the oversight of the SIB, Securities Investments Board, which was a statutory regulator. So it was a two-tier system. You had the normal mm -hmm. statutory regulator, and then you had three SROs that produced quite similar rule books in some ways with principles, uh, which Andrew Large came up with, the sort of Ten Commandments approach. And that has what proved very effective. We created a statutory regulator when it then things had settled down and it became clear what then needed to be subject to a greater grip. So I don't think we should rule out going back to SROs for elements of this market mm -hmm. under a statutory regulator. And in fact, you know, Lloyds of London has a supervisory role uh, in relation to its market under supervision, as it were, uh, from our statutory regulators or our normal regulators. So I think it's a model that's very interesting. It doesn't mean hands off at all. So I think we should look at that again. And, and you know, uh, FINRA in the US is, is an SRO. Right, it's back to the future. The 1986 Financial Services Act, that's a great note to, to end on. I, I can see we've barely scratched the surface of this topic in the hour and 10 minutes we've been talking about it. So we will have to revisit it again. But we must stop now. I'd like to thank our panellists, uh, Barney Reynolds and Will Hodges from Sherman and Sterling, Oliver Lynch from Bittrex Global, and Sean Jones from XREG Consulting. Thanks also to you, our audience, for your questions and your comments. Here at Future of Finance, we're taking a break now for the summer. Uh, we will be back on Thursday, the 15th of September, same time, 1400 London time, same place, Zoom, to discuss how to make the insure tech revolution actually happen. I hope lots of you will be able to join us then. Personally, uh, I will be at the Investment Association here in London on Tuesday afternoon for a discussion related to this subject. A very new and interesting paper on digital issuance and digital investing is being unveiled uh, that day. And you can join that discussion uh, if you go to the IA website and register. And I hope to see many of you there. But for now, it's goodbye. 